This is Dan McCarthy, and you're listening to the Check-In Podcast. One of the biggest lessons I think came out of COVID was that no matter how well you plan for your future, and no matter how much time you spend visualizing things, it's going to be very rare that what actually happens is going to match the reality that you planned in your head. It's really obvious at this point that knowing where you're going to be a year from now is a fairly impossible task, let alone knowing where you'll be 5, 10, or 20 years down the line. Things can change very quickly, whether it's yourself or the world around you. That's partly the reason why those questions or surveys where adults ask children what you want to be when you grow up becomes so removed from the actual reality of things. Everybody wants to play center field for the Yankees. Everybody wants to be quarterback for the Cowboys or be a movie star or be on covers of magazines. Everybody probably at one point as a child aspired to be president or to be an astronaut or to be something else, some big goal, some big figure somewhere in the future. Through these conversations on this podcast, the conversations where I've been lucky enough to speak to some of the most impressive and most thoughtful people working in travel, I've asked that question a lot. What did you aspire to be and how did you end up here? A lot of individuals have had these meandering paths to the industry. There's so many travel advisors out there who've come into the industry looking for a second career, a second chance at life. There's so many people who plan on doing something else but landed in travel and are here for the long term because of how vibrant and how valuable they realize this industry to be. Betsy O'Rourke, who is my guest on this episode, didn't plan for a career in travel. She's one of those people who had a very different goal. When she was in college at University of California, Berkeley, she wanted to be the first female secretary of state in U.S. history. She never quite reached that goal, and Madeleine Albright was able to earn that honor in 1997, so it's out of the question now for Betsy. But speaking to her, it's fairly obvious how happy she is with the way things have worked out for her. Betsy has a long resume and a long list of achievements. Throughout her career, she's had roles at Marriott, at Hilton, Choice Hotels. She spent time at Wyndham, at Royal Caribbean, at U.S. Travel, and now at Zantara Travel Collection. Hearing her speak about how she's gone from one blue chip company to another, tackling challenges and learning along the way, all while remaining very grounded, was really a privilege for me on this episode. I keep reflecting on how the industry is so full of many bright and kind and intelligent people, and Betsy is definitely in that category. A lot of people have said to me that when I was getting into this industry, the biggest perk is gonna be having travel as a constant part of your job. And while that's certainly true over the past year, with the absence of travel so apparent, I've come to realize that getting to know the people who make up the industry, and getting to share a common experience with them might be an even bigger perk. I hope you all enjoy the conversation with Betsy. She tells me many great stories. She tells me about how she helped the U.S. travel industry, how her team helped the U.S. travel industry after 9-11 and after the Gulf Wars. She speaks to me about going from Marriott to Royal, from one blue chip to another. She talks to me about the national parks and what one is her favorite to visit now. I really want to thank her for her time, and I want to thank you all for listening to this episode. So... Let's check in with Betsy. Hi, Betsy. How are you? Good, how are you? Fine. I have to say this kind of crept up on me. I was going through my calendar last night, and I, that's why I sent you that email. I'm like, yeah. Oh 
I have not done anything about this. I haven't even had a follow-up conversation with you. So I appreciated your response. And I did mean to respond to you this morning, but I've literally been in back-to-back meetings since 7.30. Well, is now a a bad time? No, no. I mean, I, you know, we can just talk off the cuff. Yeah. Maybe we can reschedule, but I don't know. (laughs) I have nothing prepared. That's all I got. I don't. I don't think you need anything prepared. I think just your time is uh, is valuable enough for me. I think. Okay. Well, great. Tell me a little bit about you. I mean, I I know nothing about you, and I mean, you're going to talk to me for a while. I need to know a little about you. That's fair enough. Um, yeah, I'm the editor at uh, Travel Market Report. I've been here for. I've been on. I've been with TMR for probably about five years now. Uh-huh. Um, I've been editor for probably three of them. So. Yeah, I, I it was my first job in travel. It was with TMR, so I kind of had to dive headfirst into the travel trade and things like that, and 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 figure out what was go- going on in the world of the travel agencies. And it's been it was like trial by fire at first, and then I kind of felt like I was getting the hang of it until last April, and things again shifted dramatically, which I'm sure everyone in the industry is quite used to at this point. Um, but yeah, Have you but, always been in travel? I mean, were you a journalist and then came into travel or? Yeah, exactly. I was, uh, I was a journalist. I was, I was writing other, I was living in London for a little while and then I came back to New York and that's where I am now. I mean, I live in Brooklyn. Um, oh, my daughter used to live in Brooklyn. In, oh, uh, what part? Uh, Hill. Oh, that's South Brooklyn. Yeah. Cobble Hill is <laughs> a very nice area. No. Yeah, I'm in North Brooklyn, so I don't know. It all it, it, it it's uh she moved from Nolita. I loved Nolita. And then when she told me she was moving to Cobble Hill, I'm like, why? I love Nolita. <laughs> and uh anyway, it was a, she had a darling place, but she gave it up finally after not being there pretty much from March to through August, she finally said, forget it. She's been working remotely from Tulum. Oh, okay. And it, you're in you're in Colorado, right? I'm in Colorado. She and works you're... for a New York agency in uh, oh, North, okay. her agency closed. So, you know, she's been, she's been very nomadic. She stayed with us for a little bit. She stayed with her boyfriend in Atlanta. She's been in Tulum. <laughs> she's loving having, you know, a virtual, uh, whatever, whatever we want to call this. Yeah. Whatever we want to call this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I've, I've only, I've, I went to college in Boston and then I was in London and now New York and I haven't really been anywhere else. Um, I was studying in London. I studied, I was there for about 18 months after college and I was living in South, Southeast London, like the New Cross area, which were, was where my school was, but it was a cool area. It was a lot of young people, obviously, cause there's a school there, but it was a bit cheaper than like central London or, uh, or West London or things like that. So it was a, it was a cool place to sort of grow up a little bit and a cool community to be a part of. Yeah, I lived there for um, yeah, I loved living in London years ago. Right after I went to uh, boarding school in Switzerland, and then as a gap year, I did my A levels in London. So at eighteen, I had an apartment in uh, Ken- <laughs> South Kensington. Yeah, uh, I, I <clears throat> Kensington is the very nice area of London. Yeah, well, back then, it was relatively affordable. I mean, now, I mean, I, you know, Sloan Square and that sort of area, I mean, depending where we were, um, that I was really lucky. I got a really great flat 
literally across the street from the what they called the crammer where I did because your A levels is a two two year program, and if you pass your A levels, then you can go to any European university. But you know, college boards and advanced placements, the American exams didn't don't count for anything in Europe. You may already know that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so so I I it was unbelievable. I had this little apartment literally that I shared with um, uh, one of my best friends from Malta. I grew up in Europe, so she lived with me and I could get up and literally cross the street to get to my crammer, <laughs> to get to my class, which at that age was very important because <laughs> I had a few <laughs> Sure, how many classes I would have attended otherwise. <laughs> how do so? So, I, I, when I hear people grew up overseas, it always, I'm not sure this is the case with you, but it always, I always come to the conclusion in my head that they had a, a military family or a family in travel. Is that what you're? No. Uh, my parents got divorced. That's what oh, happened okay. to me. And my mom's second husband, my stepfather, is uh, Maltese. Yeah. So they, um, they met many years ago and then reconnected. And so my mom literally uprooted with kids, moved to moved first to Switzerland and then to Malta. What, what age did you, I mean, was it up until college that you were in Europe? Yeah, so I grew up in California, in Northern California until I was uh, 11. And then at age 11, we moved to Switzerland right after Christmas. And my mom planted me and my younger brother at the time who were school age, we were the two school age ones, um, into a French speaking school. But of course, I didn't speak any French. So that was a challenge. But that was where I really learned to ski. Because all my free time I spent skiing. And I did learn French. And then uh, that summer, she uh, relocated to Malta. Okay. And uh, so yeah, from the age of 11. And then my first year in Malta, all the schools are convents and uh, monasteries. So I went to a convent, which was not a good mix for me. Uh, <laughs> and then I uh, convinced my mother that uh, I should go to boarding school where my brothers were. And thankfully, they accepted girls that first year. And I was eligible. So I uh, was amongst the pioneers at an all-boys school with 35 girls and 200 boys. And it was way better than the convent. Oh, my. <laughs> I, that is a... And so did you have to... Did you have to learn how to speak French on the fly? Is that how it went? You just were well, kind of thrown into it? Yeah, I mean, literally just thrown into it. You just, I mean, you're sitting in classes and everyone's speaking French and, you know, pretty, I don't know how you pick it up. It's such, it just happens. Oh my God. And then, <laughs> so I did, I did some, I did as much research as I thought was appropriate before. I wanted to sort of get an introduction to you too, like from your words, but you ended up going to college in California then, correct? Well, first I graduated, after getting the A-levels in London, I actually went to uh, the Institut d'Etudes Politiques in Paris, uh, Sciences Po, as they call it. Okay. Uh, and I thought I was done. I had my French degree, I thought. But then when I came to the United States, because I am American, even though I lived abroad and been educated, you know, high school and college over there, I tried to get a job and pretty much everyone said I was overqualified because I spoke languages. Okay. Okay. I mean, okay. You know, and they were, so my mother's best friend, it was a professor at USC. And she said, you have to Americanize your resume, dear. And I was very resistant, but she said, come on, just go get an American degree. So yeah, I went to Berkeley and I did it in four quarters. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Oh my God. 
And well, then, I mean, they took they took a lot of you know they gave me credit for all the work. I mean that that was a whole other process, but never mind. And one of the funnier stories about that is my dad was still a California resident, so here I have an entire international education, but I applied as a California resident, not an international student. So that sort of took the administration by surprise, but it uh, it all worked out. I loved Berkeley. I feel very grateful that I had that opportunity. Yeah, you majored. So I, I, I looked at your LinkedIn. That's where I got all, most of this information. Uh, yeah. And you majored in international relations. Is that right? Poli sci, yeah, international so relations. What were your aspirations at that point in your life? Secretary of State. That was my job. That was the one I was going for. I was okay. going to be the first female Secretary of State. And I was incredibly lucky because my right upon graduation from Berkeley, I got a job working for the Secretary of State of California. Oh, wow. And it was absolutely fantastic. And I hated it. I truly hated it. <laughs> I, I, I did this job and I thought, boy, you know, at the time I was really devastated. But thankfully, I learned that really early. And uh, that's when I moved to New York and just had a complete career change, but and completely dropped everything about being in any kind of political. <sighs> I mean, the politics, you? I just, the politics, what I envisioned, I was incredibly naive. And I just had this much different view of what politics was all about. And mm. when I was actually in the midst of it and saw it for what it is, I decided it wasn't for me. Yeah, I I mean, I don't I was never asked. I'd never had those aspirations to go and have a career in politics. But I it does, especially when you're in your early 20s or in your late teens, it does seem like a different thing. Politics at that point in your life, it seems it just seems like a, like I'm only 10, I'm probably about 10 years out of that age right now. And it, it's I look at my old self with a certain level of night of being naive back then, you know? Yeah. I, I think I was just incredibly naive is <laughs> the best way to, but I learned that. I mean, you know, at the time it was devastating because I had, I was so defined. I was so clear on what my, what I was yeah. going to do. Yeah. So to have that, just like the rug pulled out from under you so early, but what a blessing because I, uh, Moved to New York, which I absolutely adored. I loved the Big Apple, uh, very international, which really suited me. And, you know, I fell into this job that was kind of this crazy job where I was the head of creative for an all-female company, which back in those days, this is 1981, back in those days, it just it was unexpected, but it was, we basically did the marketing promotions, fundraising for the CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world who were headquartered in New York. And this was sort of to amplify their social position as opposed to their business position. So my job was to come up with the wildest and craziest ideas to get them on page six and get the accolades for them. And while they were doing something good, right? Yeah. Uh, so it was their charity tie-in. So every time, you know, the chairman of Warner Brothers, Steve Ross, every time they did a new movie, you know, a movie premiere, we would do the movie premiere tied to a charity. And that was, so my job was, well, how can I make this movie premiere even greater and how, you know, 
to get the social coverage. That was their primary goal. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, in addition to, again, they've always, it was well-intended, but there was a trying to build out the resume, if you will, of these CEOs. Yeah. It was pretty interesting. But the great thing about it was, um, I mean, first of all, these people were incredibly bright and accomplished or they wouldn't be the CEOs of major corporations. But I was too young to be intimidated. I didn't know how important they were. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I mean, you know, oh, well, you're the chairman of Citibank. Oh, it's the chairman of American Express. Oh, it's the chairman of Warner Brothers. So it's like, oh, okay. Oh, and you're sort of innocently walking in in my early 20s, you know, <laughs> for making these presentations. And I remember thinking, why are there so many people in this room? Because they always have an entourage. <laughs> of course, now as I've gone through my life, you know, I mean, it's true. <laughs> There's many advisors to CEOs. <laughs> and so they all weigh in. Well, how did so, so I guess if we're going to follow your career path, so now you're <laughs> in New York in the early 80s, and then I mean, what what was the path to lead you into the travel industry? I know you've been in the industry for a bit now, um, and I know you've gone from comp different companies in different segments of the industry. I know Wyndham, you have spent some years of your career with Wyndham, with Royal. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, so how did you, what was your first step into the industry? Um, well, I was working for this special events company, and uh, the American Hotel Association was based in New York then. And they had a mini crisis happen because they were planning a global meeting at the UN in New York. And the person who was responsible for it sort of had a, a breakdown is okay. probably the nicest way I could say it, three weeks from the meeting date. And so they called and said, do you have anybody who could just come in and take this thing over and make it work? So me. <laughs> I was sent in and, um, you know, I mean, it was, it was quite, it was amazing. So in, in three weeks, basically with their team, but I mean, I came in blind. I knew nothing, uh, but there was a team of people who had been working under this other individual, but, you know, no decisions had been made. I mean, all these logistics had to happen, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that was my entry. And then they, I, you know, said that was fun. And then I went off to do the Bob Hope golf tournament in Palm Springs. Uh, and I get a call and the person who was their head of marketing and communications had resigned. And they asked me to, if I would take the job. So I did. <laughs> and so I loved it. It was fantastic. I was working for the American Hotel. Back then it was called the American Hotel and Motel Association. And I reported to the CEO and I got to, I mean, the people I was working with were the presidents and CEOs of every major hotel company. And I mean, it was fantastic. And then I created this marketing and PR committee uh, of all of the marketing and PR people across those major corporations and some independent hotels, et cetera. And to this day, many of us are still really good friends because so many of us were at the beginning of our careers and uh, it's just, it's been great. That was the beginning. And then I went to, from there to, uh, uh, well, I had my own business for a while and I had some great clients all in the hotel and, and travel space. And then I, um, worked for and then I, w I went to choice hotels to bob and jerry 
Bob Hazard and Jerry Pettit, two of the legends in the in the business. And uh, we grew at that point. They had just come from Best Western, and um, they had I don't know 330 quality inns. And the vision was to be the largest hotel company in the world. And I was with them during that growth period, which was just so exciting. I mean, that's when they invented the limited service product in Comfort Inn, which was the first limited service hotel. Uh, and then it went on to, we did some acquisitions, we did some new brand launches, but in that, whatever it was, 12 years that I worked with them first as an agency, then as their in-house, I mean, we went, we were the largest company by the time I left, we were the largest hotel company in the world with 6,000 some odd properties and seven brands at that point in time. And then, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want you to, I don't want to ask you to write your autobiography to me now, and, but I do appreciate all the color, but then, I mean, so, so now you're in the hotel world and I know eventually you make the, you make the change to the cruise world eventually. And yeah. I want, like, how did, how did that, I guess, change come about? Well, I, um. I, I then went to work for the uh, for TIA, which is now called U.S. Travel, so the Travel Industry Association. And then I was working. That then 9/11 happened. Yeah. I literally got there, and the idea was that we were. I mean, we were supposed to be marketing the U.S. as a destination to international visitors. This is before the brand USA, and so the the board there all had this vision of let's create within the industry the equivalent of a U.S. tourism office. And I was hired in to really create that and, and work with the industry to do it. And I was pretty excited about it. Yeah. And then, not, I mean, less than I was in the job for, I don't know, 10 months, not even nine months. And then 9-11 happened and it just changed everything. You were know. you in New York when were you were you positioned in New York when 9/11 happened? Washington D.C. Oh, okay. And yeah. I mean, so. I mean, I was very young at that point, and I kind of remember it. And I think my generation—that's probably one of the seminal events of our lives, even though we were young kids. Oh, yeah. But I mean, I don't think I had the understanding of how big an event that was and how it impacted every industry in America. And yeah, I mean, how did it feel? I mean, you were directly tied to an industry impacted by this event and you were living in Washington DC which was probably the weight of that event in Washington DC I can't even imagine yeah it was it, I mean I felt responsible for helping this industry to get back on its legs because of my role and at that moment in time yeah. um, and you know I, I used to give a lot of speeches at a lot of governors conferences in that subsequent year and the thing that people forget is that you know yes, the actual horrific events took place in New York and Washington. But because we actually grounded the entire air fleet for three full days, so many people were stranded, right? And then they were not where, they, and so just about every American knew someone who was impacted in some way, not because you were a resident of Washington or New York, but because your friend was at a, your brother, my, in my case, for example, my brother was attending a conference in Las Vegas. He ended up renting a car and driving back to Connecticut where he oh lives. You know, I mean, but those were the stories. They were everywhere. So other people were in London, you know, about to board a flight. And then, you know, now they're in England for four or five days. And then, you know, a, a communication was challenging. Anyway, so it was personal for Pretty, pretty much every adult in America knew someone who was impacted. 
And of course, you know, in, in my neighborhood, I mean, one of those fights uh, actually included people that we knew personally who, you know, uh, the wife, uh, the mother of some of my kids' friends was one of the people who perished. So, you know, it was personal for me, uh, along with many others. So it was, it was, uh, I don't even know where to go from here, but it, yeah. I, I was really fortunate to be in that role in some respects. And Bill Marriott, who I will forever be indebted to, you know, rallied the industry to raise dollars to do a campaign. And, um, you know, <clears throat> the industry stood up and in, I don't know, literally two weeks, $14 million was raised. And then TIA became the nonprofit that was used as the um the voice of the industry because you couldn't do advertising for any one company. And that's when uh, Bush 43 also agreed to be part of the ad campaign for international markets. So it, it was, it was quite a time. <laughs> yeah. That, I've read some consumer publications mentioned just with your, with your, uh, your name in the, in the articles about that campaign, particular after September 11th. And it seemed like, the, the, all the highlights of the articles were that was that Bush was getting involved in these campaigns and was directly tying the success of U.S. travel to the to the U.S. government. And that just seemed like a huge deal at the time. And I guess how did that feel? To, I mean, of course, getting this campaign off the ground is some is a success in itself. But then seeing the numbers increase eventually and travel eventually return to the U.S. internationally. I mean, how does that how did that feel when you were going through it? And is that something you look back on your career and say, that's, that's something that jumps out at me. That'll, that'll be one of my life, my career accomplishments. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, it was, it was a lot of, I mean, like where we are today, right? I mean, I reflect on that time so much in this past year because it was, it was so devastating and it was so unexpected and yet how the industry came together you know, and I feel like that's happening again, at least that's a common thread. You know, Bush 41 had also participated in a campaign after the Gulf War. So there was precedence for doing this. Um, and that was honestly one of the best ads we ever created. It was all the tourism boards came together and we edited this 30 second ad with just beautiful spots and it had a great script about come to America. Because if you remember, well, you were probably too young, but no one was flying across, you know, we had had the Pan Am crash. I mean, there were, anyway, so uh, the kicker line was, so what are you waiting for? An invitation from the president? And we got Bush to say that <laughs> and to film it. And so he was the voiceover of this 30 second spot back in 91. So now we are, you know, all the way to 9-11 and so his son is in office and we were able to play that commercial for him, which of course he knew about. And it gave us precedence for that next campaign. And Bill Marriott, you know, was again the architect of that. So it was it was a it was a great moment. But you ask, how did I get to Royals? So Adam Goldstein was one of the people on that board at that moment. He was actually the president. Uh, not after, at 9-11, it was Marilyn Carlson Nelson, but then Adam was president after that. So he and I worked very closely together on that recovery. And then when I took the role at Wyndham, you know, he, he called me and said, I can't believe you went and took that job and that you didn't talk to me. I'm like, well, I'm pretty excited. I'm working with Steve Holmes and Jeff Pilati. And I mean, this is such a cool thing. It was a spinoff from Sendent into four companies. So it had the advantage of these very mature brands, but 
but it was a startup and it was a public company. So I was very excited about it. And I loved being there. Uh, but Adam called me a couple of times and then it's at a certain moment, um, his uh, CMO decided to take a role uh, at Universal. <laughs> and so he called me and said, really, really, you need to come to Miami and let's just talk. And so it was right after the 2008 crash and um, that we began talking. And um, anyway, I ended up taking the role and loved working at Royal. It was, a, that's just a fan. I loved working at Wyndham. I loved working at Royal. It was a fantastic brand. And I got there right when we launched Oasis. I was there, I don't know, seven months before we actually launched Oasis and we were already building her sister ship Allure. So it was a, it was a very exciting time to be with with that company. And then we, we created quantum class while I was there. So it was, I mean, my, my job there was really to build a global brand. That's what they wanted to do. They really wanted to, we had, they had already made moves that way, but it was like, this is going to be the great leap forward. We're going to go from, you know, we really want to have a global brand with global sourcing, as we say in the industry, where your customers are coming from all over the place, not just U.S. Yeah, and it does feel, I mean, cruising does feel, especially on, I'm on social media, I'm on Twitter a lot, and seeing the cruise addicts on Twitter, like, it does seem to be very international now, and which is what something I'm very much looking forward to when it does restart, to be able to sort of get on aboard one of these giant ships and mix with all these different people and all these different cultures, which you don't really have the opportunity to do there, to do that a lot of different places. It's true. I mean, you know, I, it's, you know, when, when Adam hired me, you know, I reminded him I'd never taken a cruise, uh, you know, and I said, don't you want me to like, at least take a cruise before you hire me? And he's like, no, I'm looking for that fresh perspective. And you've been in this industry and you're an international person. I mean, he hired me, he goes, you'll learn it. You'll learn about the cruise business and you're going to fall in love with a cruise. And it's true. I did. He was a hundred percent correct about all of that. <laughs> uh, but it's true. It is such a, you know, you get on board a Royal Caribbean ship and I mean, you feel like you are meeting the world in addition to being able to go visit the world. I mean, now, of course, that I'm with the Zantera Travel Collection, we have Windstar, which yeah. couldn't be more different than Royal Caribbean. And they're both amazing brands. They just, you know, they have, it's a different offering. I mean, you know, the Royal Caribbean ships are just fantastic and they're a great family brand. They appeal to multiple generations. I mean, everything they do is just terrific. I, I couldn't be more proud to be associated with them. And Windstar, by contrast, is like sailing with your own private yacht. Okay. You know, they're the biggest and now these are the smallest, you know, or among the smallest. And, you know, we've got these uh, beautiful little sailing ships and beautiful, you know, all sweet ships and it's just a very different experience. It's much more like private yachting. And, you know, I always joke now in this job, you know, who knew that when I was literally tossing ropes and serving cocktails on charter boats in Malta for my summer job every year, <laughs> that I would then be, you know, you know, yachting, that we would be back to yachting. So, you know, I feel very uh, attached to yachts and sailing. You know, that is something that I want to ask you about because I hear that a lot in the in the travel industry that things tend to come full circle a lot of the times. Like it, it seems to be that once you get in the industry, you might go from cruising like you did from hotels 
to cruising and back now to Anzantara, you seem people seem to be able to move around segments, but they rarely leave the industry. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Is is that something you think is unique to the travel industry? And if it is, why do you why do you think that's the case? I, I think it's one of the greatest aspects of the travel industry. I don't know if it's unique to the travel industry because I've only been in the travel industry. Yeah, fair enough. So, yeah. <laughs> I have no visibility. I, I can tell you that amongst my many friends, you know, who have different careers and different businesses, I don't see that. I mean, I I so I I think it's a wonderful attribute. And I have this saying where I'm like. You better be, you know, nice to everyone because they could be, you, you know, if you change jobs, they could be your boss, they could be on your team, they could be a peer, they could be a you know, competitor. So just, you know, <laughs> relationships matter. Uh, I mean, I think that's true in life, but I think it's particularly true when you're in the travel industry. And if you're asking me why I think that's true, I think it attracts a certain type of person. I mean, when one of the reasons that I think I have so many lovely friends who are also in the travel business is, you know, you have this view of the world, I think, that is not, that is broader than maybe the general population, because we have the privilege of traveling so much. And we are in so many different communities, both domestic and abroad, and you see different cultures. And like you lived in London or, you know, I've lived in multiple countries. I've visited many more. I, you know, you just have a, I think it gives you a different perspective about, you know, people, humanity, the world, society, however you want to call it. Yeah. One thing that just over the past, since the pandemic started, I think too, because these discussions were just had on CNBC all the time about bailouts and airlines and stuff like that. But I, until I got into the industry and started traveling, I don't think I realized how many people the industry touches, the industry employs, how many people have built their livelihood, whether it be CEOs of companies or, or baggage handlers at the airport on travel. And I think to me, that's sort of been the big realization for since COVID is just, is just how many people, how many families are supported because people love to travel, whether it be business or whether it be leisure travel. Well, this is one of my favorite topics, actually, and one that was very near and dear to my heart all the way back to the American Hotel Association. And certainly when I was at TIA, I mean, we are the first, second or third largest employer in every state in the United States, for example. We're the first you know, uh, economic generator, the first employer in many countries abroad. So when tourism dries up, for whatever reason, it has a serious economic impact. So yeah, it's, I mean, and, you know, and it's ironic that we're talking about jobs right now because we're having a huge labor deficit in our industry right now, which you've probably heard of from other people that you're speaking to. But, you know, right now, for example, we are really eager to hire people in our national parks. We have a lot of jobs available and it's been very difficult to get people to take those roles. Same thing in our call centers. We have uh, five different call centers and hiring people for call centers, even though you can work remotely, yeah. you don't even have to come in an office, you know? I mean, it's uh, it's been very, very challenging. So, I mean, we would love to hire more people. <laughs> but what's the solution to that though? I mean, is I'm sure you have a plan or, I mean, speaking of how you've built your career, I'm sure you have some incentives or some plan or some solution in mind. I mean, is that is it a, is it a certain fact of just waiting for conditions to change or are you guys going out and recruiting people or trying to pull people in, into the company? 
Yeah, no, we really are. We have an active recruiting campaign right now. It's mostly through social channels. And we obviously have a, a referral program within our current employees, because what we found is if you know some, it's like the same thing with travel destinations. A lot of things come through recommendations. So if you know someone who's had the job or you know someone who's lived in a park, I mean, I'm just focused on parks at the moment, but we have a very diverse portfolio, as you know, and we have jobs all over the place. And I know we're not alone. I mean, this is a big topic uh, with the American Hotel Association right now, because, you know, the service industry has a difficult time hiring, uh, finding enough people. But one of the other big advantages that we, that I always talk about is you have flexible work schedules, you know, you have seasonal jobs, we hire folks, you know, we have a program at Yellowstone called Helping Hands, which is like a six-week program, and it primarily attracts, quote-unquote, seniors, retirees who just might want to own that. Might, might, they don't want to commit for a year, but it's a way to be in a park and be in this beautiful environment and still have a job and contribute. So there, there are lots of things that we're doing. The Helping Hands program is one, referral program, social networking, and um, I guess that's pretty, I mean, you know, we... I don't think we actually do paid ads, although I don't know if that wouldn't be my department. Um, <laughs> I don't think we're doing that. So, I mean, I guess, I guess I have a few more questions and I don't want to take up the whole of your afternoon, but you mentioned national parks and I'm curious, what's your favorite national park to visit? Is, do you have one in, in your mind or, you, do you, or do you not play favorites because it's sort of part of the gig now? No, I, I truly love them all. I mean, because they are all amazing. Yeah. I mean, we're so fortunate to be, you know, the stewards of these amazing places. What I will tell you is when I took this job that I went to every one of my peers and I said, so what's your favorite park? And every single one of them said Death Valley. And my first reaction was, oh my God, what is this company? Like, what if, where have I gone? <laughs> And then I got to go to Death Valley. And of course, we've actually made a significant, our owners made a significant investment in, in Death Valley. Uh, but even before this investment, I mean, it's it's one of those, it's like the best hidden surprise. It's the lead, it's just so unexpected. Okay. Because I think I always had this vision that it was hot and sort of this, you know, flat and nothing to see. And it's just nothing like that. I mean, you have these incredible mountains. Uh, you know, you've got unbelievable starry nights. So, I mean, the stargazing at night and then during the day, amazing hikes, off-roading. I mean, just, and then the oasis itself, which is the, we have a, a historic inn and a ranch, spring-fed pools. I mean, it literally is an oasis. In, in the, in, it's spring-fed, it comes out of, and so in the middle of the desert is this incredible oasis and it's just spectacular. But in terms of the one that um, I found absolutely the most beautiful, it was Glacier. I, the first time I was driving there, at, I just happened to hit this at the right moment. I turned this corner to go to Many Glacier, which is one of our hotels on the east side and it's an old historic beautiful lodge you can look it up and see and it sits on a lake with these mountains but when you turn the corner to enter the 10 or 15 mile road to get there there's another lake and i don't know i just hit it and the reflection of the mountains on these lakes with the mountains themselves i literally it took my breath away i had to pull the car over and stop the car and just stand in awe at this Splendor. It's incredible. And, you know, and sadly, the glaciers are melting. So 
my advice is don't wait, go to Glacier. <laughs> Maybe not this summer because we're completely sold out, uh, but uh, it's just, it's, it's an absolutely gorgeous place with a very short season. But I mean, the Grand Canyon, you know, you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and it gives you true perspective. And my favorite place in the Grand Canyon, actually, other than actually being in the canyon, is the Bright Angel History Room. And a lot of people don't miss that. But it's a small, little, tiny, kind of one of a, a museum almost. And in there is a fireplace and it has the, the fireplace around has a piece of stone from every layer of the Grand Canyon. But it also has the whole history of the Fred Harvey Company and how, how the Grand Canyon was, you know, the first lodgings there. And it's just, it's fascinating. So I always encourage people to take a moment and go to the Bright Angel History Room. Okay, I'm gonna I keep that in mind. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, do you have a favorite park? I haven't really done the national park tours. I, I've been to a few, but I haven't camped. I don't think I've ever camped, to be honest. My parents were not campers growing up with us. And I had three sisters too, so I think that's probably part of the reason. Three little girls, I don't think they wanted to take them camping. But I've never been able, I haven't been fortunate enough to see many national parks. But I, I have, I, in my head, I've always, I always wanted to sort of dedicate a few weeks to domestic travel because I haven't really done that. I've been, I've been to Europe a lot, like probably more than I can count. But I haven't really explored a lot of America, which I think is kind of a shame at this point in my life. Well, you've got time, but I highly recommend it. Okay. Uh, this year is the year of domestic travel with all the uncertainty about international. So maybe wait a year, but uh, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't tell you enough, encourage you enough, I should say, to uh, get out to some of the national parks because they are so beautiful and it is such a nice contrast. I mean, you're living in New York, mm -hmm. so which I love totally, <laughs> but it's nice to have a complete contrast and you don't have to camp even though we have great campgrounds. I mean, okay. we have beautiful, beautiful lodges and cabins with, you know, full running water. We don't do television. Nope. And uh, you're, you don't have much, you, you, internet can be sketchy, but that most people like that. Most people like having a little bit of a break from all the digital access. And um, it's a little tough when you're working, I will admit. <laughs> There are times when I've had to get up at 3 a.m. to download email. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, but uh, actually, we're getting, we've had, uh, we've partnered with a company where we have much better internet in all of our parks now. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think being disconnected from the internet would be the worst thing after having it everywhere for you know for, especially over the past year everyone being so easy to reach I, I think a little time of being unreachable wouldn't be the worst thing call it uh, digital detox a little digital detox <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so i want to ask you one final question and i know i don't want to take up your the rest of your afternoon but this is a question i have asked a couple of the other guests i've asked peter yeswich from mmgy this and jennifer wilson and Scott Kepp, and I'm curious if you're, what your answer is, and I'm, I have a feeling what it will be, but because you've been in the industry for so long, you're clearly very intelligent and very capable of doing a lot of other things. But, I mean, did you ever consider at any point in your career during travel, with all the crises you've had or the industry's had is probably a better way to say it. I mean, did you ever consider doing something else? Um, no, not really. I mean, yeah. I was recruited many times for different, I mean, pharmaceutical, uh, fashion, education. I've, I've had different companies approach me over, or I should say recruiters for different kinds of jobs. 
And um, at the end of the day, no, I really love being in travel. I mean, it's my personal passion. I love to travel. I think travel gives people the opportunity to really grow, kind of what we were saying before. It just gives you a different perspective. And I think it, it, there's, so there's, there, it's more than a job to me. I think if I can help people get out on vacation, the benefits of that are innumerable for your own personal self, for your family, for those around you, for the communities you visit. It just, it just, the benefits are innumerable. So it's, I love doing that. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to speak to me uh, today. I know your schedule is, is, is very busy and uh, I really do appreciate the time you've given me and how candid you were with everything too. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really have enjoyed it. Yeah, and it was great to meet you too. This is the first time we've met, and uh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, I hope we'll we'll, we'll have other occasions. So. Yeah, maybe at a national yeah. park. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, now you know who to call when you're ready to go. Uh, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> this um, will be your first phone call. <laughs> I will. I promise. Uh, no, I'm serious. I will. I will give you good advice and hopefully get you in as well. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you again so much, Betsy, and yeah, hopefully I'll speak to you very soon. I hope so. Enjoy the day. Bye now. Bye.